talks about the fact that his father's house has many mansions. Other translations, of course, will render it something to the effect of, in my father's house are many rooms, or my father's mansion are many rooms. And uh, one of the things that sort of prompted this lesson this morning is uh, a brother that uh, we know, Wes Brown, he really was encouraging us at uh, the Profitable for Teaching thing earlier this year to preach more out of Isaiah. He did his whole lectures that whole week were out of Isaiah. And the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, he's really right. I think Isaiah is a book that we deal with and we'll pull verses from from time to time, but maybe there are some aspects of Isaiah that we aren't completely appreciating in the way that we ought to. And what I want to look at this morning particularly is this idea of the house of God in Isaiah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful to be a part of our work here at North Columbus because I think the majority of us here all have pretty much the same idea about what we're trying to do. And we all have a vested interest in holding to the Word of God strongly. I think one of the greatest things that we can do as disciples is to take away any possibility of making another choice. In the sense of pulling these hedges together to the point that there's no other way to go but with God. Just as Peter said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so uh, ultimately when we look at these things, uh, <clears throat> when we contrast that and we see Israel and when we see Judah, that wasn't what they were doing. Um, when we see the lead up to uh, the, the taking away of Israel by Assyria, and when we see just the exile imposed upon them, the reason that happened was because they had put together every alternative possible. They were serving all these different gods. And so uh, what reason did they have to really uh, hold true? We need to take our, away our reasons, our alternative paths, and make sure that God's our only way. And I think one of the things we can consider is this idea of God's house, in my Father's house. What is the house of God? Well, Isaiah talks about that. And I believe that a lot of the things that Isaiah talks about are things that we can recognize and appreciate that we have right now. A lot of people will misunderstand the book of Isaiah and many of the books of the Bible as talking about some far-off distant time in our future where these things will ta be taking place literally. But, of course, many of these things were taking place literally at that time. We're just going to look at three basic passages, Isaiah chapter 1, out of Isaiah chapter 2, and out of Isaiah chapter 4, looking on this idea of the house of God. First of all, I think in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, we have a comparison to be made and a contrast. But let's read together in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, 
a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faints, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate, as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. The rest of the chapter details this idea of their worship that was going on in hypocrisy, basically, because they were still serving these idols. But I want us to focus on this, this distinction that is made, especially in verse 9, that very small remnant. Think about that, and we want to build on that idea. Think about it in, in verse 1, that three out of these kings that are, that are mentioned, out of these four kings that are mentioned, three of these kings are good kings. Isaiah was a good king. Jotham was a good king. Hezekiah was a good king. You would think overall, well, that's great. You got good kings, that means the nation can learn from them, that the nation is uh, overall maybe not falling into idolatry. Maybe the king is keeping them from that. But unfortunately, the picture that Isaiah is painting and that many of the prophets painted was that even when the kings were good, the people were still holding on to their idolatry. Even when they had good examples to look for and strive toward, they still... uh, were wicked. It's amazing to see that because what's going to follow is that we're going to see a distinction between the king and the people and the nation and we see the nation itself and what the nation has done. When you look at verses 2 through 6, this, this idea, this is not a pretty picture. This is not something that anybody would want to think of in terms of what they are themselves. Consider that what he's beckoning them to do and you think back to deuteronomy 31 really what moses said about the israelites was coming true in the days of isaiah i know uh in the times of the judges you have some of that coming true that they're going to after moses death they would become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way commanded him but it's very similar language here because moses says in there you know i call heaven and earth to witness against them Talking about the people of Israel. And what's, what's Isaiah doing in verse 2? He's saying, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. He's calling upon all of existence to listen to this and to understand what's going on. That this is the situation with my people. And what Moses said was that evil will befall you in the latter days because you do, will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Now we're going to see that phrase latter days being used in chapter 2. Now when we see that phrase latter days or last days in scriptures, we have to think about that from the understanding that this is meant as the farthest that these people can possibly see from where they are. 
if that makes sense. And so in that sense, Moses is so far back that he's looking at this time down the line that they will do evil in the sight of the Lord and provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Again, I know that was true in the time of the judges. But specifically, Isaiah is prophesying during the latter days of the kingdom or nation of God's people. In the span of Isaiah's work, you have Israel being taken away by Assyria and what's left, Judah alone, the southern kingdom, after the division, if you remember all that. And so you have a situation where this indeed is the latter days of God's people as a, uh, a nation itself. They're going to be scattered. And it's an amazing thing when you look and see in verse 3 what's going on. This is, a, this is an illustration of the ignorance of this nation, the stupidity of, its, of this nation. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. Israel, adulterous, idolatrous Israel, they don't have the sense that an ox and a donkey have. And when we turn aside to idols, we're the same way, aren't we? When we fall under idolatry today, we don't want to consider, we don't want to understand the truth of the Lord. He talks about an offspring or a brood of evildoers in verse 4. A people that are weighed down with iniquity. That word iniquity is a much stronger word, by the way, than, than sin or error, isn't it? The idea of iniquity. That's the reality of what we have to deal with in terms of sin. A brood of evildoers, children who have corrupted, uh, who have forsaken the way of God. They're causing spiritual decay. And... In verse 5, this is a, a, a really interesting statement too. The idea I get here in verses 5 and 6, you know, the idea, why should you be stricken again? You're going to revolt more and more. It's the image of one who has been consistently hurt and torn and sickened because of their own actions. And yet they will not turn from that way. And the point that God seems to be making is that why should, why should I punish you more? You're just going to do the same thing. The idea that there's no goodness or soundness in them. I know that this is not a happy message, right? But it's going to turn positive in just a minute. Continue to think about this. You have compared, I think, in verses 7 and 9, we begin this comparison that we'll, we'll develop, this idea between fleshly Israel and spiritual Israel. Well, what do I mean by that? You have Judah alone. And Israel itself, at this point that Isaiah is prophesying, is indeed desolate. It's, it has been burned. It has been overthrown. And most of it has been left to rot. The once mighty empire that Solomon had presided over was essentially already gone. And all they had left was their hypocritical worship. They're just going through the numbers. In Micah 6 and verse 13... There's a very interesting statement made there. Uh, Micah 6 and verse 13. He says, Therefore I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away but shall not save them. And what you do rescue I will give over to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. 
You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil, and make sweet wine, but not drink wine. For the statues of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done, and you walk in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore you shall bear the reproach of my people. Do we see the consequences of idolatry? It's interesting to me when you see buildings that are left to decay. And you can even see this very easily if you look on, on, online. I've seen videos of, uh, have you, anybody ever watched any videos of dead malls? Malls that have been abandoned and left to rot? It's amazing how quickly this happens because one video I watched, the, the mall was closed in like I think 2008 or something. And already the ceiling is like caving in and ripped out. Everything looks like it's been abandoned for like 40 years. But that's only happened within a short period of time. Because when we leave things alone and we let them fester, that's what happens. When we don't care about our soul, when we don't care about the temple of the Lord that we're supposed to be, that's what happens. And that decay and that rot can very easily happen. Even in the ashes of this awful situation, though, God in His mercy and His grace provides for a remnant. Think about this. Think, this statement is huge in verse 9. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, would have been made like Gomorrah. And he's not really just talking about the moral situation here. In those days, what was known about Sodom and Gomorrah is that they had been wiped out. That there was literally nothing left of them. And even today, if I have my understanding correctly, the area that most people tend to think that Sodom and Gomorrah was at is still barren. What Isaiah is saying is that without this remnant, Israel and Judah would have been completely lost to history and lost to time. They would have been like the Hittites or the Edomites in modern times. I'm talking about people that really just recently, archaeologists have begun to find traces of their existence. For a long time, uh, people would say, well, the Hittites were just a people made up by the Bible. You know, they're not a real people. Or the same thing about the Edomites. But they, they found the stone city of the Edomites. They found uh, evidence of the Hittites. But really, what he's saying is that we would have been like that. A people that would barely have a shred of evidence that they had ever existed. And so how great the grace of God in this. Look further in Isaiah 10. Let's look later, uh, later on in the book. Isaiah 10 and verse 20. This is where our hope begins to really uh, manifest together. Isaiah 10 and verse 20, It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel as such, and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. So even prophesied among this, even among all of these bad things, there is a remnant that will indeed return to Israel. 
But even in this sense, in a greater sense, the Messiah would save the remnant. And we're not talking about the fleshly remnant necessarily that came back from the exile and repopulated Israel because we know from Malachi and we know from the Gospels that that remnant was not uh, the same kind of faithful, righteous remnant that Isaiah is prophesying about. But it was the remnant of spiritual Israel, the Israel that accepted Jesus, the remnant among whom were Peter and Andrew, people like Mary, people like Joseph, who were looking for the Messiah, the Israel that received the Messiah and obtained salvation through him. Again, Romans 9, 29, As Isaiah said before, Paul says, Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Even closer, Romans eleven five. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And brothers and sisters, those of you who are Christians, those of us who are Christians together, we are part of that remnant even today. And as we continue to look at this passage, I want to establish that's what the house of God is. And we're a part of that great kingdom. We are part of what is called in the book of Galatians, Jerusalem above, which is free. As we continue to uh, develop these thoughts, let's look at Isaiah 2 and verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. What should be a very positive passage really becomes fairly depressing if you want to look at it from a literal angle like many of our premillennialist friends want to. If we're waiting for this moment, let me tell you, this is never going to exist on earth. There's never going to be a time where all the nations just lay down their arms and we're just going to all be peaceful and everything's going to be okay. I'm sorry, that's not the way that this sinful world works. So what is Isaiah talking about? What is Isaiah pointing to here? Well, we've got to consider what's going on here. He mentions uh, the latter days. I think in verses 1 and 2, we're talking about what's said is the mountain of the Lord's house. Now, the latter days, in this sense, remember, uh, Isaiah is talking about this in a particular way. And in fact, Acts 3.24 tells us something about that. Peter says, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many of his spoken, have also foretold these days. So that links us up there. To know that when Peter is talking, uh, for example, in Acts 3, he's on Solomon's porch at that time. But he's talking about the time from the beginning of the kingdom of Christ. He's talking about what I believe to be uh, beginning at Pentecost until now. We're not just talking about Pentecost, by the way. 
But we're talking about this sense of this is where we're going to go. If you want to know the Lord, uh, then, then you're going to approach Him in this way. This mountain of the Lord's house is exalted above all. The Lord, as we see, provides His kingdom with majesty and exaltation above all nations of the earth. We note in Zechariah 8 and verse 3, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Again, I think there is a dual sense here that there are elements of this that were true in the first century about Jerusalem. If you wanted to know about the God of the Jews, you would go to Jerusalem. But in a greater sense, we're talking about spiritual Jerusalem which I believe also to be the sense that we're we're called into this kingdom. And we're called to be a part of this. And if I'm a Christian, I am a part of this. Uh, Turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, we'll start in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Can we see that the new Jerusalem that we see in Scripture is not just this far off place? I recognize that heaven, I I believe, is going to be the fullest extent of that. But we must as Christians recognize that, that there is a spiritual aspect to our life even now. And if we don't see that, we're not really seeing the full picture of what has been revealed. We have the mountain of the Lord's house. All are called to that place. And God will instruct them and teach them in the house of the God of Jacob. Back in Isaiah 2 and verse 3, he talks about that, the house of the God of Jacob. But I want us to look specifically at John 6 before we go back to Isaiah and consider what Jesus says here. How are we called to the mountain of God? Does God just sort of pick and say, well, I'm going to call this person the mountain of God, but not this person. Those two people, but not that third person, not that fourth or fifth person. Consider what Jesus says in John 6 and verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, if we stop there, we might say, Okay, well, the Father will automatically draw people, and the Father chooses who he wants to draw. Look at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God, Therefore, everyone who has learned, heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We need to have a willingness to hear and learn. Generally, that wasn't present in Isaiah's time. In fact, Isaiah's message was looked down upon. Of course, if you look at Jeremiah, uh, his message was hated very, very much. What we learn from the scriptures is that righteousness, doing the right thing, is a taught thing. It's not inherited. We're not going to generally uh, uh, vacillate toward doing the right thing. I know we want to think generally that people are good. But I think generally we need to see that people are not 
uh, inherently good or bad. We make our choices, and we bear responsibility for those choices, but we need not think that we're, we're intently or, or automatically drawn in a particular way. We're drawn because we listen. We're drawn because we take an interest in God, and God directs us toward His Son. And so we approach the mountain of the Lord's house, the house of the God, uh, of, the God of Jacob, and we say, we'll walk in His paths. We'll walk in His ways. And this is a kingdom for those who need direction, and it is God who does the instructing. And again, if we go back to chapter 2, we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It goes back to the source. If we're part of spiritual Israel, heavenly Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, then that teaching is the source. That teaching comes from that source. And so we're to be part of that. And it's also, of course, the house of judgment. In verse 4, talks about he will judge between the nations. Remember, we're back in Isaiah 2. He'll judge between the nations. Uh, God's word is the standard of all matters within the kingdom. Again, we read out of Hebrews 12, where we're called to be part of the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Brothers and sisters, there's no room in the house of God for worldly judgment. We need to learn that great lesson. So often we try to take things from outside of the Lord's house and put them in, don't we? We try to use worldly reasoning to work through situations within the church. That's wrong. In 1 Corinthians 5, the latter part of that chapter, verses 12 and 13, he talks about what, you know, what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. You see, we're going from a worldly standpoint when we begin to treat sinners with such contempt and hatred out there in the world, and yet we're very careful and cautious among our own brethren. And even if we find something wrong with each other, maybe we'll just kind of glaze past it. Well, you know, I recognize we, we have patience, things like that. That's not what I'm talking about. We need to be willing to understand that God indeed is the judge. He's the judge of all. And when we begin to take this worldly reasoning and, and try to put it into the Lord's house, it's not going to work. He's also the judge of peace. Again, in, in uh, verse 4 of Isaiah 2, the idea of beating their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, this is something that, again, is not going to happen in this world. Okay, No one's going to say, okay, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just be not seeing it. People want that. But they end up fighting over something eventually. What happens here? Look at the language here in verse 4. He'll judge between the nations and rebuke many people. What comes out of that rebuke? Peace. Peace. We need to remember that the Lord's rebuke leads to peace. God's truth does not cause division. God's truth does not cause suffering. It causes peace. And yes, we may divide from those who are in a worldly standpoint, a worldly thought. 
But think about Zechariah chapter 9. Let's actually turn there. Zechariah chapter 9, and we'll be looking in verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. We have a Messiah who took all these methods of war and among his house they don't exist. The things that would be used in the world to foment division and push these things are turned into methods of growth and edification in the Lord's house. Think about the tongue. Think about how our words can do so much damage. But when we turn our tongues over to God, they're used for good. They're turned into a a, a way that we can build each other up. Again, Isaiah 11 and verse 9 says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what we have in the kingdom. That's what we have in the church. That's what we have in the sense that we belong to this. We're part of this house. And we contrast this. We can contrast this, for example, with Joel. We don't have time to go into these passages, but in, in Joel, there's some of the same language, but it's talking about the idea of, of war, you know, the idea of turning your plowshares into spears, and so, so on and so forth. It's sort of the inverse of this. And we could go into that, but there's just something to think of there. What we get here is that there's no room in this house, in the house of God, for the weapons of the world. Uh, hatred, jealousy, envy. Uh, you, ha- you have the, the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. That's the way that the world works. That doesn't belong here. That doesn't belong in the house of God. Now, I'm not talking about this building, by the way. We're talking about our existence as Christians. We need to stop taking the weapons of the world uh, and, and try to insert them into the Lord's house. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Good things, I think, to think about here. This is who we are and how glorious that is. Let's, let's read just the final passage and the lesson will be yours. In Isaiah chapter 4, Isaiah 4, we'll begin reading in verse 2. Isaiah 4 and verse 2. Think about how great this image is. There's there's lots of passages like this in Isaiah, by the way. Isaiah 4 and verse 2. In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime and from the heat 
for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. This is who we are, brothers and sisters. We are part of his people. We are his people. Verse 2 tells us that we're part of those who have escaped. What have we escaped? Well, we understand other passages that we don't have time to go into, but we've escaped sin and death. He has saved us. He's brought us out of this wicked world and planted us on this mountain with Him. We're part of His house. We're exalted above the nations. We have escaped the terror and the horrors of this world. We are, as referred to in verse 3, the holy. He says in verse 3, All who is left in Zion remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. We're part of this new Jerusalem. We're set apart for the Lord's work. We're special. We're special people. We're not just random assortments of molecules on this globe that's spinning somewhere out there in the universe. We're special people. We're people that have been set apart for His work. We're washed. As verse 4 says, Purge the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment, by the spirit of burning. He's washed away our filth. He's washed away our sin. And we have a clean start. There's no reason for the Christian to feel weighed down by past sins because we have the blood of Christ. Anything we feel guilty about, we can move past those things. We are the sheltered people. I think verses 5 and 6 deal very well with this. Think about the imagery. We're talking about Old Testament imagery here, right? The cloud by day and the fire by night. That was a reminder to the people of Israel that God was there, that God was with them, that God was providing uh, protection for them and help for them, that He was looking out for them. And God indeed protects us and provides for us every day. And I think as Christians, there are ways that He protects us that we may not even really know about, but we can be thankful for. So this is who we are. Think about the good things that God has done for us. And today, if you realize that you're not who God wants you to be, if you realize you're outside of this city, if you haven't died with Him through baptism, or if maybe you have, but you've removed yourself outside of the city, and maybe you've tried to push yourself away from the Lord, we want to encourage you to come back. Whatever you need this morning, please come back to God while we stand and sing.